Hi, I'm Pete Seligman, and this is season four of my podcast, The Next Step. This year, we hosted the first ETA forum at Manly Beach in Sydney, Australia. So in this season of the podcast, I'll be sharing with you the audio from each session of the forum. At the beginning of each episode, I'll provide an intro to the speakers, and then at the end, I'll share with you the key messages and insights that I took from each presentation. If you were there on the day, these episodes will provide a good opportunity to reflect on your learning. If you weren't able to join us this time, even though you missed the networking, these episodes are a good summary of the content shared at the event. I hope you enjoy them. I think this is something that Jim Stone Sharp talks to. He's a Harvard professor, big in the search world. He talks to that value, of even if you don't have a great result out of your search career-wise, it's not the end of the world. You don't have too many scars on your back. But showing some difficult experience definitely doesn't set you back too much. This was one of my favourite sessions of the day because it was so direct and raw and really got under the hood of the search and operator journey. Jake Nicholson from SME Ventures walks us through Nick Bamford's experience, which in his first search was quite, to be honest, a difficult journey. And there was a lot of lessons that he learned. It's an excellent insight into the reality of search and operation. And we really appreciated Jack's questions and of course, Nick's candor. So I'll leave you with the, the two of them to take you through that process and take you through that story. And I'll come back at the end with some of my thoughts. Hope you enjoy it. I had the privilege of writing a case on Nick Bamford's story for a class I teach. And we're gonna bring that case to life a little bit over the next 45 minutes. Nick, thank you for for joining and for opening yourself up to tell your story. Yeah, no worries at all. Good to uh, good to meet everyone in person. Nick and I were chatting last night, and uh, he was going through some lessons learned. And uh, I thought it might be good to start with the the lesson learned that we highlighted last night, and sort of frame the discussion that way. So, what what would what would, what was the lesson learned be? Yeah. So I think the the main. The main takeaway, one of the big reflections I had on my experience in my first search was the way that someone behaves during a negotiation is pretty much how they're going to be in business. Um, and that, that I learned that the hard way through the, uh, the business owner, mm. um, from the business I acquired, but I've also reflected on other times and with investors, advisors, um, colleagues, subordinates, like the way someone behaves during that negotiation gives you a pretty good insight as to how they'll be. I'm an optimist, so I kind of often gloss over some of the more challenging things and just assume everything will be all right once the deal's done. But I think my lived experience is probably that's not the case. All right. So with that cliffhanger, can you give us a quick uh, profile of, of you pre-search? So pre-search, um, I spent about six or seven years engineering project management in oil and gas. Uh, bought my old man out of, uh, out of his uh, engineering business with my older brother. Uh, set up a subsidiary in Brazil. MBA at University of Queensland, two years strat consulting with Carney in London. And then uh, that was my um, jumping off point to search. And you uh, did your MBA UQ, you said. Um, and so okay, let's let's fast forward. You launched your search. Let, actually, quickly, why did you decide to launch a search and buy a business? Um, a lot of what you'll hear me say is it's in the Stanford Search Fund Guide uh, that I followed pretty much religiously. And I am one of those people that wanted to own and run a business, but didn't want to do a startup. So you launch a search, uh, self-funded, and you start sourcing. You quickly found a few deals. Can you give us a quick profile of the first few deals that you acted on? 
Yeah, interesting. So I found a company that does security, you know, the little tags on genuine like um, AFL shirts, all the holograms, the security type um, type stuff. I found a company that did elevated work platforms based out of Melbourne. Um, so all sitting in that sort of 800 to one and a half millibitda kind of range. Um, the fire protection. Fire protection I looked at. Um, yeah, didn't get into making an offer on that. Um, interesting, interesting anecdote about the fire protection one. Why, why you didn't go through with that? So I, I looked at a few of those, yeah. of those businesses. It was something that people were having success with in the US. Fifty percent of it was lovely recurring revenue on contracts and sort of going into the uh, the body corporates and doing the testing. The other fifty percent was uh, construction contracts. And I looked at a company that was doing a, I think it was about three million EBITDA. And they had 30 million in bank guarantees based on physical assets on the owner's house, basically. So, um, yeah, that, that would have required a lot of capital to, to, to come in and run. So you struck that one off the list. And eventually you found the company that you would ultimately make, make, an, make an offer on and proceed to, to close. Can you tell us about that company and, and what it did slash does? So in engineering business, uh, doing maintenance for quarries. So real niche focus. Um, it was doing six million revenue, 1.3 in EBITDA, um, about, about 30 people in the company, very rough and ready. If anyone here has been on a quarry, um, it's like, uh, mining's kind of rougher brother. Um, it's a, yeah, very rough and rough, I'd say rough, rough and ready business. Uh, four, or there were three managers in the company at the time I acquired it. Um, all very hands-on in, in, in the business. And the owner's situation was he'd been doing it for, for too long. He'd uh, had some skin cancers, sort of gave him a bit of a wake-up call, and he wanted to retire. You were a few months into your search. You had seen uh, several deals. Why did you like this one? Why, why was this the one you thought you could dedicate yourself to for years to come? So my, my mindset during search was, was very much, I'm going to run through and I'm going to look at a bunch of deals. And if one hits the criteria, I'm going to do that one. Mm. Um, I didn't line. I wasn't lining it up against future deals or past deals. It was literally going through the pipeline, and this one popped up. I, I liked it because of again the Stanford the criteria in the Stanford guide, the recurring revenue. It was just it appeared just big enough. Um, the owner was pretty dedicated and compelled to or felt compelled to sell. Um, and it was in an industry that had some, some decent tailwinds. Can you go deeper, a, a little bit deeper on that? The, the attributes that you found attractive, the nature of the, the, the how, how they sold contracts and what the industry dynamics were, things like that. Yeah, cool. So the, the customers are Hanson, Holcim, Borrell. So pretty well established blue chip customers, um, reasonable payers. I don't know if anyone here has worked with them. They were, they were fine. Um, the, 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 it was a service, some predominantly a service business with a little bit of parts. So the, the cost of growth was relatively low. So I could go in with, you know, secondhand ute and a couple of some uniforms and some hand tools. Um, that was my, my cost of growth. So that was very attractive, especially being as a self-funded searcher and, a um, and coming in without investors the ability to grow it without having to go go out to market was was very attractive. Um, the the work was contract predominantly contracted, but all of these contracts are like 30 day 
no claw, you know, you can you can get out. The customers can get out of them. So I was more more interested in the repeatability of the of the work, and you, and you look when you look at the, um, yeah, when you're looking at the customer contracts, I've got the same slide I use on, on on any any deals. Looking at the evolution of the top ten customers, and they're all there and they're all growing. Um, so, can you tell us about the? Can you tell us about the seller? Yeah, so seller uh, English guy. I'd come over, I think, 20, 20 years ago, um, very much uh, ser service technician and, and quite a rough, rough and ready guy, rough and ready industry. That doesn't bother me. I'm, my background's in oil and gas. I'm just as comfortable wearing high vis as I am uh, wearing a suit. Um, but very, like a, lot of like a lot of sellers, very nervous through the deal. And one of the things I think, and I noticed through the negotiation was his his level of commitment. Whilst he appeared committed to sell, he hadn't engaged lawyers until the back until I was well into my due diligence, and I took that as okay, it's fine. He's progressing on, but actually, I was far more invested in, in it than he was. And so, when it came to getting the thing across the line, he uh, I, I I felt more compelled than than he did, I guess. Yeah. So let's let's. So you were, you were, again, a few months into your search, you, you had made offers on a few companies before, but still relatively fresh to the process. How did you, um, how did you go about structuring an offer on this company? So I, I went in with the, off with the structure in the Stanford Guide, um, a third vendor note, third equity uh, that I was going to raise from investors, and then a third, um, third bank debt. Uh, I'd, I'd had conversations with Westpac already and had a banker who was interested. Um, so that was the structure I, I went in with and was accepted. I think I think my multiple was 2.8x, um, something like It was the, the whole number. Yeah. Um, so went in with a dollar, dollar offer in the letter of intent, which the seller jumped on. He was happy with that. Um, that's not the structure I ended up buying it with. <laughs> So take us through the journey, uh, the, the negotiation journey. <laughs> oh, man. So I, I actually found, so I started searching in March. I had the signed LOI in June. Um, and I ended up taking over the company at the beginning of the following year. He'd, he just, he, he went in very keen, ready to do a deal, and then started having second thoughts. Uh, one, uh, during the November, that was my lying on the floor in tears moment that if you haven't done it as a searcher, you're probably not doing it right. Alex, Alex had 30 months ahead of a few of those. Um, I saw the deal was, was gone. That's when I took up running um, as a way to, to just find myself something positive to do. Um, yeah, the... Um, Why did he have second thoughts? Why was he... I just... Cause so, he, so he didn't like banks. So the, he couldn't get his head around the fact that the bank would lo loan me money and I would trust the bank to not screw me over. Um, <laughs> um, banks are great, <laughs> um, especially Judah. So he'd, yeah, he'd, he'd been, he'd, he was worried about the financing. He was worried about handing it over. It's the the thing of being a seller is, you know, you are the, um, it's you know, spend more time with the business than his kids. So there's an emotional bit. There's being ready to to let go, ready to retire, and also with a third. A third of the purchase price in in vendor in vendor debt, he was you know he needed to get comfortable with me. So that 
took a bit more of a process of going in the ute, riding around, visiting sites. Yeah. And how how, how long had you spent on this deal when it when he backed out? Um, oh, five months. Five months. So five, you're about eight months into your search, something like that. Yeah. Eight, eight, nine months into your search. And lying on the floor, maybe not literally crying, but oh, uh, wondering what you... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but wondering what, where life was going to take you next, and what did you do at that point? Um, well, I took besides a, crying, crying, yeah. running, and I just got back, back, got back to it, got searching again. I had dropped some of the. Everyone says keep the deal flow going when you when you're negotiating, and everyone drops the deal flow. Paige, Paige apparently hasn't, um, <laughs> and I believe her. Um, <laughs> she's she's kept a solid a solid deal flow, but it's really hard because you you start seeing yourself in the searching pretty gets to be pretty grim after a bit, and being I think I'm probably not the only person um, saying that today, but it's a it's a hard process, and so keeping that going when you're imagining yourself in the CEO role, you're imagining a salary, is is really is a really hard thing. So I dropped. I dropped the deal flow and I picked it back up and just got ready to ready to go again. You were married at this time, yep. Right? How did your wife handle the emotional roller coaster? Um, so, the big, yeah, big thing is that is your partner in the search is your is your is your romantic partner. Um, Emma, Emma's uh, she's dramatic. She studied opera at university. So, like, if we smash a glass, like the drama. She is the coolest person when, you know, when, when I was giving her bad news and saying, hey, I'm going to be searching for another 12 months. And she's the coolest. Yeah. She's like, how long did you, did you plan to search for? Well, after two years. So what are you, what are you crying for? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so by having that support, having someone bought into the process was a big, uh, big, big part of it. The seller came back. The seller came back. Saying what? He said, what does it look like if I'm your bank? Meaning what? So the deal I ended up doing was 90% leveraged um, in term debt. Sorry, in, in, uh, in vendor debt. So with 10% of the purchase price in my own cash that I handed over, um, I acquired 90% of the shares in this business with a fairly sustainable payment quarterly payment schedule to pay the owner out over, I think it was three, three uh, it was either three or five years um so pretty pretty good for a, you know that's that's your dream as a as a self-funded searcher is that you land on a structure like that where you're going to be 90 percent owner of a 1.3 million dollar ebitda that you can grow and build and like yeah that was uh that was a pretty good feeling but but <laughs> Okay, before we get to the butt, okay, so you're 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 feeling good. Yep. Uh, complete uh, transaction closes. Tell tell us about the first day at pizza. Yeah. Um, so sitting, yeah, sitting there. So it was literally the night I was signing the documents. Went out for pizza. There was a team team dinner with pizza. Um, really engaged workforce. Are all like they they hadn't been taught. They'd been. A couple of the managers had been told a couple of weeks before signing, but the rest of the team certainly hadn't. And so it was their opportunity to meet me for the first time. It was pretty chilled out. I think um, my take on the team was they're all really good, very engaged, very curious. They were really excited for, you know, I was going and saying, 
going to professionalize some of the systems that you're frustrated with, um, going to help grow the company. I've got this vision that we're going to be a, a bigger, you know, bigger company. We're going to be the go-to maintenance provider for all of the quarries in Southeast Queensland and beyond. And, and I'm really interested in investing in you and your growth as professionals and come on the journey with me. And that was well received. I had a, a good feeling after that. I skipped over a part. Can you tell us about your diligence process? Yep. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have access, not unusually, I didn't have access to the management team during the due diligence. Um, that's been my that's been my experience with most of the things I've looked at. Um, I did the commercial strategic stuff myself. I've been doing that as a consultant. Had a uh, accountant do the financial and uh, got sort of fairly basic legals done. Um, so the due, due diligence process went fairly smoothly. I was, uh, and I've still, I still look back at the deck. I'm happy to share uh, share the uh, censored version, but I'm pretty happy with the due diligence that I did. I think the market trends bit, I probably, I was, a, I was probably a little, little bit optimistic in mm. terms of what the construction sector was going to be doing. Um, there was a lot of infrastructure at the time. This was 2018, and there's a lot of infrastructure being announced. And so that pipeline of infrastructure was shooting up, and that was going to be a driver behind some of the, some of the growth. And I think that was a little bit sluggish. Mm. But overall, I, I look back at the due diligence and think it did a, a reasonable job. All right. So you, you've made the announcement. You've met the, met the team over pizza. And you spend the, how do you spend the next couple of weeks? Um, trying not to do anything. Um, but the seller went on holiday pretty much straight away. Um, <laughs> and I didn't ask him to not go on holiday. I was like, I put a lot of confidence in the seller's ability to manage the transition because he knew the company, right? He knows the people, he knows the best way to do that. And I think actually that's not the case. I think unless, the, unless this person has handed over a company before and has gone through that transition, they're not they don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of it and they may not be coming from the best place so he but he buggered off his wife who was a bookkeeper buggered off uh and left me to it and i started having to make decisions people were coming to me to there was a crack in the crane hook well okay four hundred dollars seems about right i'm not going to take that kind of risk and so i started having to make decisions quite quickly that i was i was comfortable with as a as a ceo as a project manager before like i was pretty good at asking Okay, why do we need to do that? What's the risk of not doing it? And just asking those questions to be able to make decisions. But that sort of ramped up. My, my ramp up was very quick, um, probably a little bit too quick. You also put on the high vis and got out, uh, oh, yeah. went, went on rides and got out into the field to meet customers. I was, and Yeah, I was, bill, I was billable immediately. Um, <laughs> my Saturday mornings were spent, I spent a lot of Saturday mornings um, on quarry sites, scraping quarry dust out of machines. For me, that was part of the leadership thing of demonstrating that I'm prepared to do the work and prepared to get dirty. My reflection on that was actually it didn't work. <laughs> You'd have thought that's that's right, you know, you demonstrate your, your hands-on. All that happened was people in the company just started seeing me as a billable resource that they could <laughs> fill holes with. <laughs> but I'm not joking, I was... Uh, so I, whilst I still do try to show that frontline leadership and I'll, uh, you know, I'll go and do... Cal I'll, I'll, I haven't been for a while, but I'll try to get on site and do calibrations with my technicians at the moment. I'm very careful to, that they do not see me as mm. a billable resource. They see me as the guy driving the growth. Um, so that was yeah, a bit of a learning. 
So you didn't have access to the management team pre-acquisition. So th these first couple of weeks with the owner on holiday is, is your first opportunity to get to know them. Yeah. How, how did that relationship evolve? Those relationships. So I was I was pumping them up. I was so there was two. So there was the guy. There was an older guy running, and he ran the paint shop. Um, but he also had some experience in the quarry stuff. But the two younger guys, probably I think they were late twenties, early thirties, both both managers in the business, sort of did the cust customer relationships, managing the teams. Um, really good. Like you see them at work. They're great with the customers. They're selling stuff all the time. They're pretty harsh with the team, but they're effect managing the team effectively. Um, and then I see, I saw them working side by side together and they're passing tools are pretty much all, all you hear is, yep, pass that, do that, you got that in, yep, yep. And they're taking apart these big machines and it's like magic unfolding. So I was really impressed with the guys when, when I met them. But pretty quickly you started noticing some issues with some of your key people. Yep. Um, so one of the, so one of the, one of the managers, um, we'll call him Chester cause that's his name. Um, <laughs> um Shadow house rules. <laughs> um, so he, he was a very volatile, uh, a very volatile character. Um, you know, which is again, in that sort of environment is not unusual to have these weird and wonderful people. But very, you know, he would he would fly off the handle at fairly minor stuff, um, and over the over the course of running the business, it became apparent the guy was an alcoholic, um, to the point of the story where at the, the 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 crunch point was when I, I needed to fire him because he'd been drinking rum at lunchtime and abusing the staff, um, and he was just an un he was, I think he was just fundamentally unhappy dude and a lot going on in his personal life. Can you quantify the importance of this person to the business? I reckon if I'd lost him, it would have been about 20% of my revenue. Um, Tough decision. Um, you brought on a couple salespeople as well. Yeah, so there were two managers working for a competitor who had teed up Andy, the, the previous owner, and said, hey, can I come work with you? And he's like, you probably need to have a chat with Nick. Um, so. I met them. They, they seemed impressive. Um, they'd been running a decent size operation over at the competitor. Uh, they weren't too expensive. And I said to Andy, well, what would you do? He said, oh, I'd hire them like that. They're going to make you money. So I, I hired them. They started like two weeks after me. Um, one of them, so they were, they were kind of, they were manager slash salespeople. One of them was, one of them turned out to be very good. Um, and I would work with him again. Uh, maybe I will. Um, the other guy was pretty useless, and I fired him. I think twelve weeks in. He was he was meant to sell stuff, and he hadn't sold a cent. And I fired him twelve weeks into his employment. But during that time, during giving him a chance, these two existing managers were looking at the leeway that these guys were getting, and getting really pissed off that he wasn't selling anything, and he's useless, and you need to do something about that. So very quickly, I'm faced with the big decisions that you don't want to be making in your first hundred days. Um, you know, the six months of trying to do nothing, and here I am dealing with cultural issues of people coming in. And the two guys I brought in were more more like what I want to be running the business as, more professional, actually cared about the guy's safety, um, and were able to sort of manage manage people in a bit more of a structured way. Um, so those those cultural things just started to 
um, starting to grate. So you have uh, alcoholic manager who is uh, has a temper on the yard, uh, but represents p potentially twenty percent of your business. You have an under underperforming salesperson that was recommended by th the seller uh, that you ultimately have to fire. The seller is absentee, um, surprisingly, for immediately post-acquisition. Uh, and you also uh, notice an opportunity to clean up the finances. Well, the so the finances were all paper-based. Um, they, they were using software called Reckon. I don't know if anyone's got experience with that. They, that they'd bought, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Paige has got similar similar challenges. So I'm, and there were the the girls, um, the the finance and, and admin team, um, you know, running reams of paper through this through this place. Um, the seller's wife, as bookkeeper, wanted to um, wanted to retire. Uh, she wanted out as quickly as possible. So I brought in uh, an outsourced CFO that I knew through my MBA network. Um, their thing was digital transformations and was her and her business partner at the time, digital transformations and outsource CFO. Lovely, lovely business model. They'll come in, take away a lot of the manual work and then basically that pay, they pays, pays for themselves. And how did that go? Uh, really good, we put zero in. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, however, my CFO um, was uh, a woman and she is bold and you know unflinching and a bit of, and a bit of a presence around the office she's my current cfo now um but that did not go well when she asked the managers hey guys you're going to need to put the invoices in oh no they, they did not want to be told what to do by a woman um and they complained bitterly to me about my cfo now you know we've all Done reflection and learning, and I think Lisa learned a lot about uh, about herself and leadership style and communication. We all came away with lessons, but I, when the guys asked me to get rid of her because they didn't like being told, well, they didn't put it this way, but they they didn't like her. The seller's wife didn't like her, and he said, "You need to get rid of that CFO." Um, I'd been prepared for this because I'd read all the search fund stuff, and it said the seller will complain bitterly about some of the changes, but if you know that you. You know, you've got, you've, it's your business. You've got to pick your course. Mm. Um, so when he said, I need you to fire this person, and he'd committed to the boys. He was like, don't worry, I'll take care of this. Mm. I'll tell Nick to fire her. And I said, no, um, which is sticking to my, you know, sticking to my values, um, which is something I've never regretted doing. Um, when I said no, he, that, he, he, he was pretty pissed off, as were the two, uh, the two managers. And this is happening sort of, in tandem with the alcoholic manager becoming more of a problem, uh, and also those two managers sort of back-channeling with the seller a little bit about you, right? Yeah. So they, they and I was, I was aware that there was a there was a communication line there, and I think that's important through the transition that they didn't feel, you know, it's a it was, it's like a family. Yeah. That you know that dad is disappearing and leaving you to it. So yeah. I, I was keen that they had that channel of communication. Otherwise, it was. Otherwise, it could have been quite a negative thing, just looping round. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd probably do that again. Allow the, those, you know, certainly some of those feelings. 
side and allow because the, the seller to be fair was teeing me up and giving me the the context of when you know, this guy's unhappy he doesn't like being told what to do by by lisa um so i was getting that like but it was that that back channel was that was definitely there i felt it all right so you have those that bucket of hr issues uh you have the absentee seller um you are cleaning up the financials and that's that's going well yep um and but you start facing a cash crunch. Uh, why did what what brought that about? <laughs> oh, Forgotten about that. <laughs> the Sorry. so in the in the deal, the seller had committed to. So he 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 he, he switched the working capital, um, the working capital calculation off. He was like, it's, it's fine. We'll just take care of it. My my view was okay. That's fine as long as I've got cash to run the business. I could make that back, and I was I was pretty happy. Um, but the, the last minute he switched it from leaving some cash in the business for a period of time to a revolver. So when it came time to pay the ATO, as we'd planned and as, I, as Lisa had forecast for me, because cash is everything in these businesses, um, the seller told me, I'm not feeling it. Those, if, if anyone, if anyone, you went, you went to go call, call this revolver yeah. so you could pay your tax bill. And the he response said, was, I'm not feeling, I'm not it. feeling so it. So if anyone wants to trigger me. Pete, close your ears. <laughs> Pete. Oh, man. <laughs> um, luckily, the ATO is a fantastic and, and let me remind you that that seller is holding debt equal to 90% of the purchase price of this yeah. business. So should theoretically not have any incentive to tank this business. No. Oh, completely. So this, And that's one, yeah, one of my big takeaways is you set up a deal structure and all the incentives to put it, have everyone pointed in the right direction. And the, logically, he should absolutely, he, what he should have done was keep, keep me in the business and keep, um, you know, and, and get me to pay that, pay that debt. Um, and be, we should have been fully aligned in our incentives to what we were doing, but that was not the case. So he said, I'm not feeling it. And you said? I said, oh shit, Lisa, help me. Um, <laughs> and... We called up the ATO, and um, they are—they were brilliant. I wouldn't recommend doing it on a regular basis, but called up the ATO. I got a payment plan in place, um, and managed to avoid that sort of first first cash crunch. But obviously, it didn't leave me feeling particularly good about my relationship with with the seller, um, and knowing that he was going to be at my back when I needed him. So that was, um, yeah, that was pretty harrowing. So you got a payment plan. What happened the next time you had a payment due? So I had a um, so, so I had a, a payment, uh, his first debt payment, which he was mm. he was worried about. Um, it was pretty clear that I didn't have the cash in the business to keep running the business and pay that debt, and I told him so. Um, and he was understandably pretty unhappy about that. Mm. Um, now I had per I think I didn't mention I had personal guarantees on on that debt, um, <laughs> which. Which is fine, and that's the point at which, um, you know, so I, I, I'd actually negotiate, whilst he was nailing every dollar of working capital to the floor, I was getting the terms right. So the, the reason I was able to exit relatively, relatively unscathed was that for him to put me in default, he had to get, I had three months post missing a payment for him to, to be able to make it up, and then default just gave me another three months. So in any payment, I had six months window 
Um, he told me he's not putting any, any there's, no, there's no more money going into the business. Um, you're going you're gonna to have to do what you like. I told him, hey, I've got a um, million dollars in working capital and I'll draw down on that dollar by dollar and I'll leave you a dollar in the top drawer um, you know, if you want to play hardball. Um, and so we sort of ended up at this kind of impasse where there wasn't enough money for me to comfortably run the business, although I could have, I, I had a structure in place and I Westpac um, lined up to provide um, invoice invoice financing. Um, yeah, can you talk us through the, at this point in time, you were evaluating what to do and you, yeah. you, you identified a, a, a handful of alternatives that you were weighing against each other. Can you take us through a few of those and your thinking behind them? Yeah, so, he, he'd indicated he'd be interested in um, sort of coming back in and running the operations side of the business and keeping the two managers on. Because the, the, the two, I was going to fire the, the alcoholic manager. The other manager had indicated if I did that, he was going to go too. Jeez. So another buildup in that impasse. <laughs> um, so the seller said, I'll come in and run the operations, but I'm going to need a chunk of the equity back for free. I said, no, yeah, okay. Uh, let's think about that. Um, he then he, so, he rescinded that. I said, um, "Well, I'll uh, you tear up. Give me, give me. I'll take my capital back out, and uh, we'll uh, we'll call. I'll take my capital out plus the profit made in the in the months I've been running the business, and uh, we'll call it. Yeah, you know, we'll call it quits there." He offered to to buy it back from you. He offered to buy it back for a fraction. For how much? Do you remember? I can't remember the. I can't, it was basically I wouldn't get a cent. I think it was like fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, or something fifty like that. fifty thousand. Yeah. Um, he was going to give me out of my initial my my original capital. Yeah. Um. So I. Yeah, and you had put in like six hundred or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd gone in, I, I'd gone in, yeah, relatively aggressively saying I'm going to take all the profit out the business, um, plus yeah. my plus my my capital. He came and said I'll give you fifty k, and that really. And I think at that point I went and I sat down with a mentor, a uh, really senior guy, real thinker. And the question he asked me was, if you were a third party investor, who should be running this business? If you were outside and you weren't involved, would you pick yourself or would you pick him? And I'm there, I'm going to lose the two key managers. They subsequently left anyway um, and didn't have enough cash to keep this thing going and the relationship had completely broken down. Mm. Um, so when I, when I answered that, when I looked in the mirror and answered that question, I had to say, I would, if I were an investor, a, a passive investor, I would pick him. All right. So you decide that your time with this business is done and you have to get out as unscathed as possible. So take us to that, that boardroom. What was the situation and how did the, how did the conversation evolve? Um, so the around the table, seller, his wife, two lawyers, and a, two or three accountants who he'd got come, got got in to do a valuation. Um, two things: one, I'm a strategy I have background in strategy consulting, so difficult conversations with people drawing stuff on board is not gonna not not gonna phase me. Uh, the second the second thing is I went into that room on my own with my lawyer, just teed up ready to look over anything that I wanted to agree. So I wasn't paying anything. Um, and, uh, and also, um, I can be a little bit of a prick sometimes, <laughs> and I really enjoy an argument. Um, and so I was ready, to, ready to, to, to go in. They'd been in all morning, and I came in at lunchtime. So they'd been discussing their strategy all morning. I came in at lunchtime, and they're already tired. 
Um, <laughs> I went in with energy. Uh, you know the expression, you know, re- like, like wrestling a, a pig in mud. Um, you're not going to win, and the pig's going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was a little bit like that. I, it, I mean, it comes like it, it wasn't like I went in with a, an amazing negotiation strategy. The work I had done at the front end in shaping that loan agreement, the share purchase agreement, meant that there was very little that he could do to get me out. Mm. He knew that I could draw down on the working capital. I knew that I could. Con- I knew that I could continue running the business. And I went in with a number below which I wouldn't go and pretty much opened, um, I think, within the first hour of negotiation. I mean, they, they were telling me about, oh, the balance sheet's done this and where's the cash gone? I'm like, are you accusing me of fraud? Oh, no, no, the lawyers are probably shitting themselves. Um, it just an argument with the accountants. I, I, I went to my fallback position, which is I'd taken, um, I'd taken 50 grand in, um, in, cons- in consulting fees as basically as my wage um, out of the business. Um, so I said, pay me 550, I've taken the 50 and we're square. Uh, and I just stuck to that. And I sat there, um, they needed me to go out the room. So I went and sat in the little room drinking the free Coke. So the, in the lawyer's office, um, came back in, they kept kept saying, oh no, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I, kept, and I said, oh, I'll have a think about it. Went sat in the little room. Uh, actually, wrote, I was just playing time. I wrote out the poem, if. I want to memorize, I wrote that out in my notebook, came back and said, sorry, guys, it's not going to fly. And just kind of kept doing that because the negotiation was done, you know, the eight months previously. Um, and um, the seller looked me in the eye and said, uh, you know what this feels like? It feels like you've got me over a barrel. Um, and the next bit was slightly slightly less uh, <laughs> less polite. Mm. And um, But yeah, fundamentally, they, they agreed. So I, I walked away. With, with most of my capital intact um, and some good good learnings about <laughs> myself. It, I mean, it, it kicked my confidence. That was mm. a big thing. I thought I'd back myself managing people um, and leading teams. And there were, you know, there was fundamentally, there was in there a failure of leadership. And I can point to all these other factors. But I had I've had to come to terms with the fact that a better leader than I mm. would have been able to to, to manage that and to, and had that team come with them. That's 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 a tough thing to to realize or even say. I, 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 uh, how long did it take you? Are you are you over that? Yeah. <laughs> does it sound like Does it sound like him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what. The be- well, the, be- the best thing I did, well, again, uh, great, great, great advice from, from a different mentor. I was like, cool, so uh, Glenn, I'm, I'm going to get ready to go again, and I'm determined to buy a good business this time. And he said, just stop, do some consulting work, mm-hmm. take your time, don't jump back on the horse to prove a point. Um, so I did some work for a healthcare company on their organizational design and, and did marketing strategy. They're still good mates to this day. Um, I did... Um, I did some other bits and bobs, uh, some financial modeling work. And then this guy who uh, Alex Simmons had introduced me to uh, calls me up and said, hey, Nick, I heard you're doing some consulting work. Um, have you got any availability? And it was uh, Pete over there um, <laughs> to do an ERP implementation. Um, so I started working uh, with SRO um, and um, 
I mean, this is kind of the ha happy ending, right? So I had all that experience. It was a happy ending for the shareholders in SRO because I'd paid for all that experience <laughs> with, my, with my own cash. Um, and I think this is something that Jim Stein Sharp talks to. He's a Harvard professor, big in the search world. He talks to that value, of, even if you don't have a great result out of your search career-wise, it's not the end of the world. You don't have too many scars on your back, but showing some difficult experience definitely doesn't set you back too much. But yeah, I've, I've, I've built my, my confidence back up a lot. Um, I've got a great, great team at SRO, um, but taking some, some lessons there, uh, we hired a general manager, started eight weeks ago, and top of my list was must have a trades background. Mm. I didn't want a I didn't want a general manager who was an engineer or an MBA. Like I needed someone who who has that ex, that shared experience with the Australian mm. tradesmen, um, the, in order to, to 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 lead that. Now I still get on great with our guys. Um, it's a completely different workforce that I work with currently, but I'm very aware of that. And maybe it's a confidence thing. Maybe it is a, an ability gap, but I won't look at a, a workforce like that and go, yeah, tell you what, I'll be the, I'll, I'll be the line manager. I'll be the, the person they all look up to. Um, so um, yeah, def definitely uh, good, good lessons I've taken away from it. And did you just buy a company yesterday? Yeah, um, we, <laughs> we bought a company. <laughs> so yeah, we closed. So S SRO, uh, we're about 40, 40 people. Uh, we work across measurement and instrumentation. Um, I can bore you to death about belt scales and speed sensors and metal detectors later. Um, so we, we we do work for across the energy and resources uh, sectors, mostly in mining uh, and actually quarrying. I've seen some of the boys on the same same site, um, but we've uh, yeah we we acquired an electrical services business at Emerald, um, so it'll take us to 85, 85 heads, um, and I did so using the exact same methodology that I used for the first search, down to having the same intern. Um, <laughs> not an intern anymore, Max. I don't know if Max is probably... Oh, hey, Max. Um, hey, Max. Ma so Ma Max is actually probably speak to this journey just as much as I can. Um, but yeah, we, we acquired a, a business using writing letters. Again, painting by numbers using the, the Stanford Guide, writing letters to business owners, um, get reaching out to brokers, um, and yeah, acquired pretty much... Um, yeah, so basically double the size of the company and 100% debt funded. So, wow. Um, so, so you are, so you're now running a business in which you have some equity interest. Uh, you are using search mechanics to make acquisitions or an acquisition so far, maybe more in the future. Uh, I've already got another one in due diligence. Yeah. And the third one, when Max gets the analysis done, I'll be putting to the board. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Pete's an ambitious man, but he does yeah. have to. But even so, has to pull 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 me back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so a somewhat circuitous path to get where you are, but are you happy? Yeah, really happy. Um, I love what I'm doing. I've got good balance between working with people, strategy, um, and, uh, and and board. And so yeah, I've got a, a vision for where I want to take SRO. I've got directors who are bought into that. Um, and so uh, three years time when we're at the fourth, well, yeah, four, four, fourth search conference, uh, hopefully we'll be sitting here um, having made Pete an incredibly wealthy man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Nick is one of the most um, generous people in this ecosystem when it comes to sharing his story and, and advice and making introductions. And he's been nice enough to to join my class a couple of times and now share share his story pretty with in a in a pretty vulnerable position um, in front of you guys. So I just want to say thank you so much for 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 opening opening up to us. It's, oh. It was really awesome. No, thanks, Jake, and thanks for all the, the support you do for the for the search community. Yeah. The key 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 part in in building that up. Um, and it's just great to see all the uh, see everyone in person off of off of a Zoom call. You know, meeting a lot of a lot of you guys for the first time uh, face to face. So. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Great work, Nick and Jake. Thank you so much for your insights as you took us through that storyline. It's not easy to speak openly about failures and challenges. So thank you, Nick, for being so open in discussing those points and, and what you learned. Three things that jump out at me. I mean, there was lots of content in there and I'm sure that you all took a lot from it depending on the perspective that you brought. But three things that jumped out for me is a comment Nick made around behavior in negotiation being a good indicator of behavior in operation. And I think that's a really important point. We spend a lot of time negotiating with people before any kind of contract and then we execute the contract and then we're looking for that contract to be delivered by both parties in a valuable way for the benefit of both parties. And so it is an important lead indicator as to how they behave during that negotiation phase as to how they'll then behave in operation. The second one is kind of almost a search truism, which is maintaining deal flow when you've got a deal on the hook is really important, but also it's very, very hard. You know, you're sitting there imagining yourself in the driver's seat of this business that you're going through due diligence on. And at the same time, you're needing to keep the plate spinning on pipeline and new deals just in case this current one falls over. So it is difficult. But it's very important because it ain't over until you sign on that dotted line and the cash changes hands. And then the third one is a general lesson that I just love across every environment, which is even if you don't have a great result, you can get great lessons. And so, you know, sometimes, well, often actually things don't go to plan. And so being ready to kind of take that on the chin and then reflect in as objective a way as possible as to what you can take from that into your future kind of approach to different situations is really, really valuable. So even if you don't have a great result, make sure you get some great lessons out of that process. So anyway, thanks again to Jake and Nick for a good session and I'll leave you till next time.